Chapter 7 of Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by B.G. Oxford. Maggie, A Girl of the Streets by Stephen Crane. Chapter 7. An orchestra of yellow silk women and bald-headed men on an elevated stage near the center of a great green-hued hall played a popular waltz. The place was crowded with people grouped about little tables. A battalion of waiters slid among the throng, carrying trays of beer glasses and making change from the inexhaustible vaults of their trouser pockets. Little boys in the costumes of French chefs paraded up and down the irregular aisles vending fancy cakes. There was a low rumble of conversation and a subdued clinking of glasses. Clouds of tobacco smoke rolled and wavered high in air about the dull gilt of the chandeliers. The vast crowd had an air throughout of having just quitted labor. Men with calloused hands and attired in garments that showed the wear of an endless trudge for a living, smoked their pipes contentedly, and spent five, ten, or perhaps fifteen cents for a beer. There was a mere sprinkling of kid-gloved men who smoked cigars, purchased elsewhere. The great body of the crowd was composed of people who showed that all day they strove with their hands. Quiet Germans, with maybe their wives and two or three children, sat listening to the music with the expression of happy cows. An occasional party of sailors from a warship, their faces pictures of sturdy health, spent the earlier hours of the evening at the small round tables. Very infrequent tipsy men, swollen with the value of their opinions, engaged their companions in earnest and confidential conversation. In the balcony, and here and there below, shone the impassive faces of women. The nationalities of the Bowery beamed upon the stage from all directions. Pete aggressively walked up a side aisle and took seats with Maggie at a table beneath the balcony. Two beers! Leaning back, he regarded with eyes of superiority the scene before them. This attitude affected Maggie strongly. A man who could regard such a sight with indifference must be accustomed to very great things. It was obvious that Pete had been to this place many times before, and was very familiar with it. A knowledge of this fact made Maggie feel little and new. He was extremely gracious and attentive. He displayed the consideration of a cultured gentleman who knew what was due. Say, what the hell? Bring the lady a big glass. What the hell uses that pony? Don't be fresh now, said the waiter with some warmth as he departed. Eh, get off the cart, said Pete after the other's retreating form. Maggie perceived that Pete brought forth all his elegance and all his knowledge of high-class customs for her benefit. Her heart warmed as she reflected upon his condescension. The orchestra of yellow silk women and bald-headed men gave vent to a few bars of anticipatory music, and a girl in a pink dress with short skirts galloped upon the stage. She smiled upon the throng as if in acknowledgment of a warm welcome and began to walk to and fro, making profuse gesticulations and singing in brazen soprano tones a song the words of which were inaudible. When she broke into the swift rattling measures of a chorus, 
Some half-tipsy men near the stage joined in the rollicking refrain, and glasses were pounded rhythmically upon the tables. People leaned forward to watch her and to try to catch the words of the song. When she vanished, there were long rollings of applause. Obedient to more anticipatory bars, she reappeared amidst the half-suppressed cheering of the tipsy men. The orchestra plunged into dance music, and the laces of the dancer fluttered and flew in the glare of gas jets. She divulged the fact that she was attired in some half-dozen skirts. It was patent that any one of them would have proved adequate for the purpose for which skirts are intended. An occasional man bent forward, intent upon the pink stockings. Maggie wondered at the splendor of the costume and lost herself in calculations of the cost of the silks and laces. The dancer's smile of stereotyped enthusiasm was turned for ten minutes upon the faces of her audience. In the finale, she fell into some of those grotesque attitudes which were at the time popular among the dancers in the theaters uptown, giving to the Bowery public the fantasies of the aristocratic theater-going public at reduced rates. Say, Pete, said Maggie, leaning forward, this is great. Sure, said Pete, with proper complacence. A ventriloquist followed the dancer. He held two fantastic dolls on his knees. He made them sing mournful ditties and say funny things about geography and Ireland. Do those little men talk? asked Maggie. Nah, said Pete, it's some damn fake. See? Two girls on the Bills' sisters came forth and sang a duet that is heard occasionally at concerts given under church auspices. They supplemented it with a dance, which, of course, can never be seen at concerts given under church auspices. After the duetist had retired, a woman of debatable age sang a Negro melody. The chorus necessitated some grotesque waddlings supposed to be an imitation of a plantation darkie under the influence, probably, of music and the moon. The audience was just enthusiastic enough over it to have her return and sing a sorrowful lay whose lines told of a mother's love and a sweetheart who waited and a young man who was lost at sea under the most harrowing circumstances. From the faces of a score or so in the crowd, the self-contained look faded. Many heads were bent forward with eagerness and sympathy. As the last distressing sentiment of the piece was brought forth, it was greeted by that kind of applause which rings as sincere. As a final effort, the singer rendered some verses which described a vision of Britain being annihilated by America and Ireland bursting her bonds. A carefully prepared crisis was reached in the last line of the verse, where the singer threw out her arms and cried, The Star-Spangled Banner! Instantly a great cheer swelled from the throats of the assemblage of the masses. There was a heavy rumble of booted feet thumping the floor. Eyes gleamed with sudden fire and calloused hands waved frantically in the air. After a few moments' rest, the orchestra played crashingly, and a small fat man burst out upon the stage. He began to roar a song and stamp back and forth before the footlights, wildly waving a glossy silk hat and throwing leers or smiles broadcast. He made his face into fantastic grimaces until he looked like a pictured devil on a Japanese kite. The crowd laughed gleefully. His short, fat legs were never still a moment. 
He shouted and roared and bobbed his shock of red wig until the audience broke out in excited applause. Pete did not pay much attention to the progress of events upon the stage. He was drinking beer and watching Maggie. Her cheeks were blushing with excitement and her eyes were glistening. She drew deep breaths of pleasure. No thoughts of the atmosphere of the collar and cuff factory came to her. When the orchestra crashed finally, they jostled their way to the sidewalk with the crowd. Pete took Maggie's arm and pushed away for her, offering to fight with a man or two. They reached Maggie's home at a late hour and stood for a moment in front of the gruesome doorway. Say, Mag, said Pete, give us a kiss for taking you to the show, will you? Maggie laughed, as if startled, and drew away from him. Nah, Pete, she said, that wasn't in it. Ah, what the hell, urged Pete. The girl retreated nervously. Ah, what the hell, repeated he. Maggie darted into the hall and up the stairs. She turned and smiled at him, then disappeared. Pete walked slowly down the street. He had something of an astonished expression upon his features. He paused under a lamp post and breathed a low breath of surprise. God, he said. I wonder if I've been played for a duffer. End of chapter 7 Recording by B.G. Oxford, December 2008